Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest publicist, podcaster, man about the town, and all-around music lover, Eric Alper. We'll be talking music, the business of music, the life of music, business insider, and we'll get some other insights as well about the current state of the business and much more. So join me for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been around, as they say. Eric Alper is a rock star publicist to many and varied artists and has carved out a successful reputation and business model for over 25 years, as well as helping with the careers of many artists, both well-known and up and coming. The list is very long, I must say, when I when I read your bio, Eric. So how are you? I'm good. How are you? I don't want to talk about any of that stuff. Ah, we'll just talk about life. How about that? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about rules of life. Uh, <laughs> it took some time for me to understand fully and completely um, that we're there to serve the artist. Not yeah. not the need two o'clock in the morning phone calls. Hey, dude, I like a... I like a loaf of bread. What can you do? Although sometimes I would have to go and do that. Um, But in in most cases, it's just about making sure that their vision is getting out there. I mean, I'm happy to give advice. I'm happy to let them know what I think or maybe the state of the industry or what other people are doing. But at the end of the day, we're, we're just really here to fart around and serve other people's needs. You said you had no talent for music. So you sort of took a different route and you did an, an English degree, I guess, at, uh, at York. Yeah. Yeah. I still can't yeah. play. Like even yeah. with the absolute amazingness of technology that allows 14 year olds to sound like they're conducting an orchestra, I, I still have no idea what goes on in the studio. I still can't play an instrument. Um, and I realized, I realized that early on, I just had no musical talent. I'm great yeah. drumming on my steering wheel in the car, um, but stick me in front of a drum kit and I'm awful. Um, <laughs> you could do Wayne's World though. I mean, you got the Wayne's World thing down. Right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I, you know, I've always loved music and, and I figure that if I, if I want to be a part of it, I better figure out what I like about it and to see how to get in because there's yeah. no rule book or handbook on like, okay, then you get this degree, then this happens, then this yeah. happens. There's none of that. I know I'm lucky. I know I know I'm not even blessed. I wouldn't even go there. It's just, I know I worked really, really hard in the beginning. And in the beginning, when I started the BR company, I I really just had three rules. Do it faster, do it better, and do it cheaper than anybody else that was out Mm -hmm. there. So I had to, because I had to make my mark and I had to build my reputation. It's kind of like building a credit score. Where in the yeah. beginning, maybe you're just buying dumb stuff just to put it on your credit card just so you can pay it off. That That's what it was like in the beginning when I was working with artists who otherwise wouldn't normally be able to afford a publicist, but they could afford me or that they even needed a publicist in the first place. But because I was so eager and worked 18 hours a day, I was thrilled to take on projects because I knew that if I didn't love it, I got to get out of the way because there's other people that want it more than I do that would make them happy. And, but I was lucky. I never, I never had that. I just wanted to really work really, really hard from the very beginning and try to just stay alive in this industry. You know, every day that I was in it, even if I, even if I didn't make any money that day, or even if I, you know, 
wasn't successful according to my accountant. It was like, who cares? Like I'm doing stuff I, that I want to do. And that was, yeah. I, I, I automatically won that day. The other thing that struck me about you is you seem to have more of a personal connection, like you're friends with people like, for example, Andy Kim, and he mentioned you in his acceptance speech, you know, so you're more connected, like he, he considers you a friend, right? So, so you have more of a connection than just a work for hire guy. Yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, when I went and even now, you know, when I work some of these artists like Andy Kim or Miles Goodwin or Bruce Coburn, Barney Bentall, Colin James, Sue Foley, those are people that I loved before I started working with them. Those are I watched Live Aid at five o'clock in the morning with my VCR all set up and to get to work with Bob Geldof and Midge Ure and all these people that played, I bought all of Sinead O'Connor's albums when they came out years before I started working with her. So mm. that's never left. It's never left. The ability yeah. that I could look at these people and not freak out outside of my body to be like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I bought Sugar Sugar and the Archies. I memorized it. It was my camp song. Like yeah. that kind of stuff, I think, still blows me away that these people are real human beings. And um, seemingly some of these artists that I've worked with for a long time, it's it's almost like I I choose to continue to work with them off the clock like off you know the financial per month because i just love them i yeah. i want not only do i want to see them succeed i want to help them succeed in any way that i can i i think because fame and being famous is such a bizarre thing to happen to people that it is completely unnatural that you write your first album normally in seclusion, away from the spotlight, nobody cares about you or your first song or the first yeah. batch of songs. Nobody cares about you. So the stakes are really, really low. And then all of a sudden you just hit this mark and the rest of the world knows you. And if not the rest of the world, then maybe you suddenly seemingly have 30 million followers on social media. Um, some of them are telling you to die. Um, yeah, most amazing. of them are loving everything that you do, regardless of any effort that you're putting into. And it could really mess with your head. You ever feel good after a bunch of your family and friends sing happy birthday to you? Well, times that by a thousand yeah, that's, that's and it great. doesn't yeah. stop. And yeah. a whole bunch of people are trying to get a piece of you and you're busy and you're slammed and you haven't slept well in yeah. months because of something that happened to you or you're just on a touring cycle. It really messes you up. When I do the radio show, I don't ask about their biggest hits because I know that that's what people want. Because yeah. I know these people have talked about, you know, <clears throat> I know Adam Duritz has talked about the first album of Counting Crows for decades. Yeah. But I'm kind of fascinated what happens with you when that stuff happens. Like, does do, are you affected by it? Or are you just in the eye of a hurricane and nothing really affects you because everybody is protecting you? And what happens when that, when you go from 25 million records sold to 3 million and everybody thinks you failed? Like, yeah, does that true. actually yeah. affect your songwriting? That's the stuff I'm yeah. fascinated about, you know, because I want to know what happens to you yeah. when things good and bad happen. So when you're working with someone as a publicist, it, it seems to me it would be important to kind of know the person and, and take a slightly different approach based on who the person is, for example. 
it's really a matter of making sure that they're at ease with things. Look, there are just some artists that I'm sure you and I, and there are people that might be listening to this that will probably think, oh, that's me. Um, they get really nervous when doing an interview. Um, they don't really think that they have a lot to say. They don't think that they have a lot to tell people. Um, maybe they like, you know, they don't like to perform on morning show television because their voice doesn't yeah. sound really great until like two o'clock in the afternoon. And yeah. everybody's got their little quirks and quirks. And, and you know, the publicist, my job is to kind of help see through all of that or kind of put them at ease a little bit and say, oh, don't worry about it. We can pre-tape this or, or, or well, why don't you tell about this story or that story? Um, you yeah. know, uh, there, there's certainly a lot of artists that I think devalued their their personal lives and how it affected the music because they don't want to give away too much. They don't, they don't want to write a song in seclusion, have it be a hit and 40,000 people a night singing those lyrics back to you. But all those 40,000 people have completely different opinions on what they think the song is or how it relates to their own lives. Sometimes that persona, they don't want to crack that, that surface of it. I, I think there's almost two kinds of people who want to make it in music. I think they're really shy people who feel incredibly comfortable on stage. And this is the only place where they feel comfortable on stage or the egotistical maniacs who believe that the world <laughs> owes them, you know, everything David and Lee everyone. Ross, yeah. Lee, right. And rightfully so, because we love that and we give it yeah. to them, yeah, you know, yeah. but I would say for the most part, you know, it's uh, something Something just happens to a lot of people's brains when you start to visit, you know, 45 countries in 60 days yeah. um, and you only have your band and maybe a couple of people around you um, that the outside world starts to look very strange to you and you can't really, um, you can't relate to it anymore. There are some artists that could you can never get to be done on time and you kind of fret in your mind a little bit because you've got a job to do and your job is also you know to work with the media and you don't want them to to hate on you or have them think that you're not in control of your artist which is silly but yeah you know i i think you know you just try to do the best that you can with the circumstances and the surrounding that you have and if your artist is going to be running five minutes you know five hours late and completely strung out or they just don't feel like talking or revealing a lot let's all just go to sleep in a in a in a quiet moment <laughs> in a mood and let's you know let's go get them the next day you know yeah. but i i've had my share of artists that didn't want to do what i asked them to do yeah and that they agreed to yeah before that plane touched down but that happens and hopefully you have a very understanding media that won't hold it against the artist or or them. Best known as the guitarist for Saga, Ian Crichton has been called a virtuoso player and a musician's musician respected by his peers. A lot of guys, they, they pick up the guitar and they kind of bang out a few chords and they come up with some tunes and do the Keith Richards thing, I guess, or, you know, the guys that just sort of bang out tunes. And you were more of a, a student of the guitar. Is that a good description? I just got glued to it when I was very young and uh, spent a lot of time in my bedroom trying to figure out Eric Clapton licks and teach myself the guitar, you know. Yeah. I'm self-taught, so yeah. Is that right? Eh? You're self-taught, so you never took lessons. You just you just got the books and kind of hammered it out and played along with other tunes and stuff? No. Uh, it was in the seventies. So 
it was vinyl and I used to, I was about 12 years old. I used to put my thumb against the record to slow it down. Of course, oh. the pitch of the liquid change and you have to yeah. kind of keep that into consideration Yeah, and uh, just kind of find my way around octaves, you know, eventually just checking everything out. That speaks well of you to, to spend that much time to figure it out and do it. Yeah. I mean, I taught myself all the theory and with, with, uh, you know, working with other musicians, yeah, just picking up everything as we go and, you know, so, you yeah. know, school wasn't needed. I mean, I had no interest in, um, reading music and playing sessions in studios like, uh, you know, a lot of other people, which is fine, but it just wasn't me. You know, I wanted to, uh, yeah. do what I wanted when did you think, okay, I can, I can make a career out of this? Or was, were you just a kid that liked guitar or was there something more of a plan there for you? There was no plan at all. It no. was just addiction. <laughs> you know, oh, cool. Uh, I just remember getting this bug when I was 12 years old and I, I just couldn't lose it. Just kept going and going and going. When I was about 15 or 16, uh, to try to get some experience, I'd look in the star paper, Toronto star, answer all these funny ads <laughs> yeah i went in once to audition for a subway elvis who was big in the toronto area at the time i don't know if you remember that guy yeah i, I vaguely i do i do remember that yes and so here That's i funny. walk in 15 years old hair down to my bum <laughs> with a stratocaster and a marshall and they're a greaseball band you know <laughs> yeah i went yeah, through a few funny. of those uh italian yeah. bands i didn't know walked in it was a bunch of Italians uh, dressed in suits and playing a show band thing, but yeah, oh, funny, didn't work. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you walk in the doors, nope, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so what was your break? Like, what, what, what clicked? Something must have clicked eventually. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think it was remember, eighteen, 19, seventeen, eighteen. I uh, uh, hooked up with a drummer, Tom Scott, who's uh, not really known at the time. He's drummer in the area. And offered me to play in, they need, were looking for a guitar player in a band called Kickback, which was yeah. half original, half cover, playing all around Toronto, Young Station, Piccadilly Tube, all these bars that were open, Gasworks. Yeah. And I spent, yeah, I spent a year in that band traveling around Ontario and Quebec. That was my first experience of uh, professional playing on stage, you know. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. And it was an exciting time too, right? For, for those who don't know us, us of the older set, I suppose it would be a charitable way to say it, know how exciting it was back then. I mean, music was a big deal. And especially in the seventies, there was so much great music around and so much stuff coming out every week, right? It was a really exciting time in the music world. Oh, it was fabulous. I mean, it was, uh, to this day, I can't ever, I've seen a healthier period I mean, here were all these bands in Toronto, Gatto, Max Webster, even Rush, you name it. Everyone's playing their own stuff. I mean, when you start your band, you're starting with original material and mm. being hired for a whole week because these clubs would hire you from Monday to Saturday. Yeah. And you weren't getting rich, but it was enough money to keep the whole thing going. Lots of practice. Never played so much every night, yeah. you know. So your early band known as the Pockets, it says here, Saga was formed in 77 from the nucleus of that band. What was the deal with that? Your brother was playing in Flood and they had some success, right? Oh yeah, they were a recording act and uh, yeah. they certainly had success. We're touring Canada wide and, and all that. And uh, the Pilling brothers, Ed Pilling and Brian Pilling. Yeah. And there was tragedy in the band. Brian uh, acquired leukemia hmm. and he passed away. At 26 years yeah. old, I believe. Wow. 
and um, that kind of finished uh, Flood. Yeah. And Jim, my brother, uh, he's three years older than me. I was still in kickback, yeah. and he was putting together an original band. You wanted to do something to do, and and I was included. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. I was 20 years old on the first Saga record. Yeah. But what struck me about that was that like, it was a completely different genre. Like you guys are progressive and more intense. And I guess sim- somebody described it as symphonic rock, what you guys ended um, up doing. So it was a real switch, right? Yes. Yeah, Saga is a cross between rock and prog, really. You know, mm-hmm. it's a mixture. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And, and were you guys ever compared to Yes or Max Webster or, or any of those bands? Uh, you mean not style wise because we're completely different. I mean, yeah. Max Webster is its own thing, you know. Yeah, yes, is its own thing. Saga's got, yeah. So, but with the keys and the the fast arpeggios and all that cool stuff, I mean, it's lots of neat stuff. And you're doing solos along with the keyboard player, which is kind of cool. I mean, Dave uh, Stone did that in Max Webster, right? A little bit, yeah. We kind of made yeah. it our uh, our things in Saga. I mean, when we came out, Saturday Night Fever was on Polydor, and they were <laughs> the warehouse yeah. was packed with Saturday Night Fever and one skid of Saga records. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't ask us to change or anything. They actually expected us and other bands to to, to break out on the third album, maybe third or okay. fourth. That was sort of the yeah. plan. It was a development thing, which is long gone. I mean, that that... That left in the early 80s. The thing that struck me about you guys, and and you had said you did 23 albums, but you've like stayed true to what what it is that inspired you in the first place, I guess would be a good way to say it. Yeah, we we didn't change. Actually, the style of band did change once, but not on purpose. It was uh, 1994, and we were down in Los Angeles, and we uh, were hired for a Stephen J. Cannell production of a TV show coming out called Cobra and they wanted us to do well we did songs in in the movie so and an album at the same time and it just ended up being our album I actually really like it but we did an about face with that record I, the audience we went a, they, we pulled the rug out from under their feet a little bit <laughs> we had to come back when then we came back with Generation 13 which is a big uh, concept progress yeah yeah. Well, yeah. And you have a, a loyal following, right? And they kind of, they like what you do. So you don't want to stray too far from that. Right. Well, we tried and they let us know. So your brother, Jim, he departed the band and he was back and forth and you guys are still working together, but you have a new member, Dusty Chesterfield. And that's gotta be the coolest name. I mean, that's right. Dan, yeah. Very talented young man. Did your brother, did you just get tired of touring? A little bit of that, yeah. You know, it's been going on a long time. Jim's got other interests also, and uh, he's working on stuff right now. And, you know, we're not spring chickens anymore. Yes. (laughs) So So then I was going to ask you, like, how much success did you guys have in the U.S.? You know, like, was there any any desire to move down there and kind of hammer it out down there? Because you're a Canadian band, and you've always been kind of proud of that, right? You're still living in Canada. Uh, My brother, Jim... uh, built and ran a studio in uh, Van Nuys, California, Los Angeles, 25, 28 years. He was producing, engineering. uh, He's had that whole business going. And uh, we did every Saga record down at that studio from 1989 to 2005. 
Oh, you did? Oh, I, I did not know that. Yeah, we went down to Jim's. It was great. He had a beautiful yeah. studio. It was second to none. It was uh, three rooms, you know, big Trident nice. console, uh, SSL, two-inch Studer machines, the new, everything, he had yeah. everything. We toured the U.S. for most of the 80s. We were all over MTV. Okay. Uh, all that changed as the years went on, as we know. Uh, yeah. they, they really broke. I mean, we had a lot of hits on MTV. We opened up uh, for everybody in the States for about six, seven years. Jethro Tull, Pat Benatar, Billy Squire, yeah. uh, Foreigner. I can remember all the bands, really. Yeah. And we do full tours. We go around the States for two, three months. A week yeah. off, back on tour, two, three months. And uh, that lasted for a good two, three years when On the Loose came out. That was top 10 down there. Was top. Absolutely. Great, great song. Huge. So you never were encouraged or enticed to move down there? Well, I thought about it, but uh, yeah. I moved to, we moved to Bahamas for three years. Oh, you did? Yes, we did. We lived in uh, outside of Nassau for about three years. Then I moved to England for about three years. We we're doing a lot of business um, over in Europe, and our management was English. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, David Hayes, also known as David Slagter, earlier in his career. Uh, David is best known as an engineer at uh, some of the top Canadian studios and has a lifetime of experience to share. When I read through your dossier, I thought, man, this guy's done a lot of stuff. That really struck me. But then also the diverse things that you've done as well. I thought this is a multifaceted guy with lots of different interests. And and the other thing I think that struck me is that you were willing to get your hands dirty. And Challenges uh, I enjoy. So I've taken on quite a few and I like to be busy. And, um, you know, when the, if there were slow slots in the uh, recording um, field, then I looked for something else, you know, that to t take me through a week or two, if that was necessary, and enjoyed it. Enjoyed the challenges that that did come up that are on that li list that you're talking about. It exhausted yeah. me too. Uh, one, <laughs> once I put it all down, thinking, "Good grief, no wonder I'm tired and old." <laughs> well, I guess at the time you're just kind of doing what you do, right? And then when you look That's at it. it later from the landscape, you're going, "Wow, that was mm -hmm. pretty good." Mm -hmm. At nine years old, I started uh, w drumming. And uh, that, that led me into, you know, the music side of the interest for the music side of it. Um, and then I, as a teenager, early teenager, and right up until I guess about 20 years old, I was in bands. I played in bands. But I realized that, okay, uh, I, I was good. I got quite good. And, uh, but, you know, at that time, looking around at, okay, well, quite good just isn't really good enough. And, and how much uh, effort and dedication do I want to put into drumming? versus the general uh, love of music and, and the sound of music and how it moved, you know, moved someone. So I got very um, lucky to get an opportunity to work in a studio at Toronto Sound with Terry Brown and Doug Riley. And I thought, yeah. okay, fabulous. You know, um, I'll, uh, I'll vent my musical interests there in a studio and learn how you record. That became much more exciting and important to me than how you drum, you know? I was, yeah, right. So, uh, yeah. So that decision was made pretty early on, really. I met Doug Riley, which was, I, I think really the, the open door, um, an amazing piano player, producer, man. And, uh, he, he, he and I struck up quite a relationship and he had mentioned when we were working together on, on hair, the, uh, the, the Broadway musical in Toronto, yeah. Um, that he and his partner, Terry Brown, who has an incredible level of respect from the industry and deservedly so, 
um, were or had just opened a studio and, and that, that tweaked my ears. And he said, you should go and talk with Terry. He's the, uh, you know, the engineering expert and just see if there's a position open there, which there may be. So I did. And, uh, Terry said, mm, not right now, you know, we we're, we're full up, but give me a call in, uh, you, you know, in a couple of months and we'll just see how it works out. So I did. And he said, yep, the chap that we had hired didn't work out. So uh, you're next on the, on the line, come on in and, and, uh, I'll let you know what, you know, what, uh, what we need and see if it's a fit. And it was, this would have been late 69, early 70. Yeah. So, and then of course your, your youthful exuberance carries you a long way in those days too, right? You just yeah. kind of, whatever, I'll do whatever we'll, we'll do whatever has to be done. That's it. It's the sleeping bag on the couch thing. And when, when, <laughs> when everybody goes home, you know, you pull out a tape and you, uh, you know, you, you mess around and you tweak and, and you learn, yeah. you learn the console and the machinery that's around it. And, I loved it. I loved every second of it and was lucky enough oh, to, to have a bit of a, you know, an ability there. So that w yeah. within a couple of years or a year and a half or so, I was, was then starting to engineer there. Thrilled to be doing it, you know, got married, oh, had a, great. had a baby and it was a real job, you know, and uh, yeah. so, okay, okay. This looks like it could be a career for who knows long, but I'm, I'm, I'm dedicating myself to it and did. What sure. was some of the biggest project you worked on there? Oh boy, I guess probably the biggest would be uh, Stampeders, um, yeah. Sweet City Woman, that, that album. And, oh, you worked and, on, you worked on recording that. Oh, I did. So yes, I did. I did. Yeah. I did quite a few overdubs and I, um, did, uh, Wild Eyes. I, re oh, nice. I recorded the, the tracks for that and, uh, and then helped Terry. He was the main, yeah. definitely the main engineer on that, but yeah. yeah, I did quite a bit of recording for that. And that was, that was fun. That one would, <laughs> yeah. uh, stands out and, and Klaatu, that certainly stands out to me. That was, uh, nice. something that, I, that I got deeply involved with and, uh, yeah. with Terry again and, and Dr. Music, yeah. you know, the two albums from Dr. Music, they were monumental as far as I was concerned, just great players great tunes great singers yeah absolutely and, yeah. and so like you're you're breaking ground in a sense too right because i guess looking back the, the music business in canada and the recording industry and stuff that was all mm. kind of still shaping itself was it not? sure as heck was i mean when i started there at toronto sound it was uh, an eight track machine an eight track oh. uh ampex and within a couple of months we had a 16 track machine and then within a few months after that We'd gotten a 24 track, I think the first 24 track machine in Toronto and, yeah. and everything was just exploding. The, the it went from, we had a lovely little, uh, prototype console, a Cadac console. And then within a year or something, we had a lovely big Neve console and, yeah. and all, nice. all the studios were like thriving at that point in time. There was so much music, you know, going on. It yeah. was really healthy, a really yeah, healthy time for the recording studios and recording industry. Yeah. So then you were there till the mid seventies, right? How did you end up in Vancouver? Yeah, that's right. It would have been, um, 74. Well, um, Jeff Turner, who was the, he built little mountain sound. He technically put it all together. He was a great engineer. He came from New York and was hired by Griffiths Gibson, who at the time, uh, owned little mountain sound. And okay. Jeff came out, um, built it, built him a, a, this big, beautiful studio complex. And, uh, once it was done, he realized, well, obviously that he needed, um, you know, he needed another engineer to help. He was an engineer as well. And he came down to Toronto with a few names uh, on his list that he wanted to interview. And I was one of them. He'd heard some of the work that I'd done. Then he interviewed me in Toronto and said, okay, um, if you like, 
Um, we'd love you to come out, you know, for a week. Come on out and see what Vancouver's all about. We'll give you a Jeep to ride around in and put you up in oh, a nice. hotel and give you, a, yeah. you know, a few bucks to buy food and stuff and see what you think of Vancouver and, and Little Mountain, the studio that, that he's just built. So out I came. Loved it. I mean, absolutely loved Vancouver. There was no rain while I was here, which was which was which was a, a nice thing. And I realized, man, you can ski here, you can play tennis here, you can play golf here, you can well, you know sail here all year round. It seems so. Yeah, and then the city was beautiful, the mountains. So, uh, and then the studio, you know, was was very very impressive. And Jeff Jeff's whole plan for um, how he saw the near future just was so exciting. And he said, okay, yeah. uh, so the two of us hit it off. And he, and he said, okay, we'll go on back and get your wife and get your baby and your dog and and uh, and your socks and come on out if, if we can do something. So I did. So, yeah, that was 74. Came out and uh, worked, worked, worked for and with him. And, um, yeah, that was the start of, of the Little Mountain thing for me. So you couldn't possibly have known how big that was going to get, though, right? Because, I mean, that became a world-class well, premier studio in, in the world yeah it did i mean uh, and and to be perfectly honest with you it it didn't develop as a surprise to me um we worked hard with with a with a with a vision that uh, you know that we succeeded at we worked very hard yeah. at, at making it uh, making it happen and, and teaching the uh you know the guys uh that came through there especially you know from in the mid to late 70s and early 80s you know teaching them what I had learned, you know, uh, yeah. from, from Terry and from my experience at that point in, in Toronto, which I was j just so lucky to, as I've said, you know, to, to be involved in. Yeah. But um, no, uh, and, and at that point in time, you know, the financing was there and the vision was there to, to upgrade equipment as, as, you know, as we could. And we did, yeah. you know, we, we ended up getting great equipment. Um, Jeff did some wonderful work with the acoustic treatments of the place and, Nice. Uh, if things just fell into place and then, you know, guys like Bob Rock and, and, you know, Mike Fraser, um, they came, yeah. they came through there with good attitudes and good ears and, and, you know, they were able to, you know, grab onto the, the theories that we had and the approaches that we had and, uh, just ran with it at an even more exciting time, you know, when, uh, yeah. when all of that exploded with, uh, Bon Jovi and Loverboy and all of that, uh, it was mm -hmm. an exciting time and, um, it was, uh, yes, to, to answer your question, did we ever know that it would explode to that degree? Well, we hoped for that. We, we, we really hoped that we were um, pursuing the right choices to make it a world-class studio. And, you know, as the, the, the years ticked by, it was clear that it's working, you know, yeah. and uh, yay, you know, we all, we all enjoyed it in a big way. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, bass player, singer extraordinaire, Donnie Underhill. Donnie is best known as the bass player and backup vocalist for Trooper on their iconic albums, but he also did much more both before and after that band. Uh, I finished high school. I'd played all the way through high school uh, with a band that was, we used to play some of the arenas and play uh, um, schools and stuff like that. And then when I finished high school, I actually got a job um, okay. at a place in Toronto called uh, Drug Trading. And I worked in the pharmaceutical department and oh. I was there for about two months and I went, what am I doing? Yeah. I had an offer to go on the road with, uh, with a, a gentleman who had a show in Toronto. His name was Bob Francis. Mm. Uh, he did, he was like a Tom Jones guy. Okay. 
He did okay. Tom Jones like he was brilliant. They went on the road with him and then um, uh, left that and we started uh, same band. We just left him. Um, I think he went back to New York or something like that. And I started with a guy named Robbie Lane, who, oh. uh, who, who I don't know if you remember that name or not. Well, I do. I interviewed him. He was on my podcast about uh, last year, I think. I didn't realize you played with Robbie Lane. Yeah, for quite oh, a while. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did yeah. that and kind of moved on from there uh, into uh, some other guy. Just decided I wanted to play music and that's the yeah. end of it full time. And, uh, you know, I had, was offered a job too. And I said, yeah. nope, not doing that. So then what was the band Lee Ashford? You, you played in that band? I did. That was with a, a guy named Gord Wozick. Yeah. Um, he had a, uh, an organist by the name of Newton Garwood, uh, a drummer, brilliant drummer by the name of Dave Karens and yeah. myself, who were a four-piece band. Uh, did that for a while. They did a recording project after I left. I got sick and ended up bowing out. Okay. And a good friend of ours by the name of Joe Ignello uh, ended up joining the band. Uh, they played yeah. around for quite a while. Gord Wasik was uh, one of the guys that ended up playing in Flood with me. He I was yeah. instrumental in getting me into Flood. So, yeah, so that I was yeah. going to ask you that, that was the next band you guys a couple of guys left from there and, and went to play with Flood, right? Yeah, yeah I got a phone call and uh, I I knew all the guys like Brian and Ned and and uh, John which changed his name to Yorn uh, Anderson and um, Gord Wasig was playing guitar. So um, I got asked to join them guys and uh, did one album with those guys called Great Expectations, cool. which was a lot. That was in, hmm, I think it was in Quebec City. We did it. No, it was in Montreal. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, recorded with those guys and played and had a lot of fun. It was a fun band. Well, like, Flood and Flood did well. I mean, they were a well-known band. Yeah. Radio play and. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, lots of touring, lots of playing, never come out West, but, no. um, did all the East coast and everything else. And, uh, cool. it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. And yep. then I left those guys. That's when I went in, I uh, moved into Brutus, very, very huge character band. Well, so very- the interesting thing, what struck me is I looked at the list of, of Brutus of the members that were in that band. And, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of guys that went through that band. Like Frank Ludwig was in that band and, and he was in the first- band before me. Yeah. Paul Dean was in the band for a while. Jerry Doucette played with them. They were a good band. So, and then the interesting thing to me, like you came to Vancouver in the mid seventies, I guess. So you yep. heard Trooper was looking for a bass player and you kind of thought, you know, I like their tunes. I'm going to come out and check it out. I was uh, playing in Brutus at the time and uh, there was some a couple of guys not getting along in that. And uh, uh, George Elms was our manager, as I recall, but he was real good friends with Sam. And uh, I said to George, I heard that Trooper's looking for a bass player. Um, I don't know what the ins and outs are on that. Uh, look into it. And he called me back and he says, you're flying out to uh, Vancouver next weekend. And I played and flew out here. And two weeks later at Thanksgiving, I was uh, driving out here to live out here. So that would have been 76? 76, yeah. yeah. And they already had some success. They had the first album was decent. There was a couple of hits yep. on there. And then, of course, two for the show was great. I love I'm a big Trooper fan, right? Like I'll admit oh, it. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. When you came into the band, that was really those next sort of five albums were defining those were the defining albums of that well band. when i i got in there there was uh they were just finishing up the two for the show album and there was something i don't remember exactly how it went but there was something with one of the tunes i believe it was called ready that was on that or something yeah. like that and uh so i don't i just remember there was some cleanup that had that they wanted to do as i recall i mean i might be yeah. wrong on how it all went but it all worked out great and i mean it was 
just the move. I was blown away at uh, being asked to move. And yeah. uh, when I jumped in, it was, it, we never looked back, you know. Well, and you were exactly fun. what they needed because you were young and fresh and played great and sang great, looked good oh, on stage. Geez. I mean, you're, I mean, really, they, I mean, they needed someone. That's why they didn't have the person that they had, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I never questioned that. I just, you know, I was just happy to be there. I had yeah. a lot of fun again the toronto scene was pretty happening you come out to vancouver and you're next thing you know you're in trooper and then the, the next album is knock them dead we got when we started rehearsing for the for that album um they, those guys were great they gave me a lot of leeway and in uh i mean they they wrote good tunes and, and i got to help out with some of the arranging and stuff like that you know in just different parts i come up with ideas yeah um it was a brutus was a really creative band and taught me a whole bunch of stuff and i i always felt it was important to help out with arranging and stuff like that so yeah. there were some cool tunes that come out of that album yeah it was a, a knock of dead kid was, was just so much fun to play that tune Great a few album. other ones you know so randy backman produced that is that right he did yeah and how yeah. was that was there was there tension with that or was it okay or? oh gosh no no he was great to deal with um the only thing with randy was uh he wanted to have chinese food every night for dinner and we'd always <laughs> want to go someplace else. so so we get our podium for the day for maybe i'm not supposed to tell anybody yeah, this yeah, uh okay. we get our podium for every day and then randy would order up the chinese food <laughs> come on randy we want to go for a burger no no we're on chinese food <laughs> he, he liked his chinese food he was one of those gentlemen so yeah you know. well the album sure came out well. I mean, you can't argue yeah. with success, right? Like they always say, like success it, is its own reward. And his deal was uh, keep it simple. You know, yeah. uh, don't overplay, don't overproduce. Uh, um, I mean, of course, you can see the success he's had over the years. Yeah. Uh, uh, he just was magic with that. And he was always great to get along with, you know. The other thing that struck me, the things must have been coming at you at 100 miles an hour because you come out here, you finish that one album. Of course, you're doing live dates too. Then you do uh, the first album, like Knock Em Dead Kid. Then you do Thick As Thieves. And then right in 79, you're back in the studio doing Flying Colors, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, like, it just kept wow. coming and coming. And then uh, I guess it would have been 79 or 80. We, we flew to Toronto and we, we thought we were going to get the, the win the Juno or something like that. And we didn't yeah. win it. So the next year, I guess we got our Juno award. And, and um, you know, it was last minute, us guys going. Uh, somebody finally said to Sam at, back there, well, you, you better get these guys out here. So we flew in um, uh, <laughs> via uh, 747 and we had the upstairs that changed into uh, change our clothes um, on the plane and everything else. And of course, we're all getting changed and everything else. And we heard somebody come out of the cockpit and we all ended up in the cockpit shooting the oh. breeze. We, I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to tell this story, <laughs> but uh, we ended up in the cockpit and they showed us around that. We got oh, changed cool. and, yeah. and went right down to a uh, harbor, harbor front, wherever they had the, uh, the Junos that year. Yeah. And one, and then, of course, in 1979, Hot Shots, you released. So that was the weird thing I remember back then, because Flying Colors came out, and then within, it was the same year, I think, Hot Shots yeah. came out. Right. Uh, I, it, yeah, it was like 10 months. Um, I, I believe there was an offer to do it, and they wanted to do it at a certain point. And there was an it was a decision made and an offer made to do, to put it out, okay. and it probably if we didn't do it then it wouldn't have got done 
possibly, you know, was up in the air. So yeah. that's why we okay. decided. That makes sense. Although yeah. that probably didn't cost you a lot of work, right? It was a record company. Sort of- uh, it was all record company and they picked all the tunes they want. And all we did was we had a right in uh, the arrangement of the tunes and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I believe that's when mm-hmm. we went in the studio and did sports car. Uh, there was a version of Sports Car. I don't think it ever made an album, but we did redid. So I think that's the only one okay. um, that was a an add on for uh, right. for for uh, Hot Shots. Because I mean that was sold huge, right? I mean that was it, it did. Yeah, um, I have a triple platinum album that I received uh, uh, in the mail. We all got one, and a couple of them got wrecked. So mm. I still have my triple platinum album oh, cool. in, in pieces. So how much singing did you do in the studio? Did you plan it so you guys had the different voices? I was usually got stuck being uh, the girl in the band. You yeah, know, I always go. got the <laughs> I always got the falsetto part, the high end, and I I've always got stuck doing that. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, not that I got stuck. I mean, I, it was you uh, do it, it was right? cool. I could do it, and yeah. I guess I was the pretty one in the band yeah. then, wasn't I? Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare. 